Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Furtan Dandia. In this week's episode, I was honored to welcome Darren Smith. Darren was born and raised in Calgary. After high school, he attended the University of Calgary where he got a degree in sociology focusing on criminology before joining the Calgary Police Service in 2004. He has since returned to school several times, being trained in management, police leadership, major crime investigations, and incident command. He is currently completing his master's degree in public safety. Since joining the police services, Darren has worked in various areas within the service. He has worked in and supervised patrol, has worked in surveillance units, including the city's auto theft team and the public safety unit, and was deployed in both the G8 in Toronto, as well as the Olympics in Vancouver. At 29, he was promoted to detective, working on significant crime investigations, including attempted murders, robberies, kidnappings, sexual assaults, abductions, and all crimes against persons. He has been awarded several times by the police service, the city, and the province for the teams and investigations he has led and been a part of. Darren has a passion for preventing family violence, He supervised the domestic violence team for many years, teaching domestic violence prevention and investigation to police officers, other agencies, and civilians. He was later transferred to the homicide unit where he worked on several homicide files, many of which included domestic violence, before moving to the offender management unit. Darren is currently a staff sergeant in the Calgary Police Service, supervising the child abuse unit. Having supervised and led hundreds of police officers for over a decade, Darren also has a passion for ensuring the mental health of his officers and their families and ensuring they have rewarding careers and lives. In this episode, Darren and I talk about his passion for being a member of the Calgary Police Services and why he loves to work with people. We also discuss the mental health challenges first responders face and the impact first responders have on our society due to their dedication and the sacrifices they make. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and if at the end you could leave a five-star review, I would truly appreciate it. All right, Darren, welcome to the Easy Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I'm super, super grateful. Um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. It's something I've been meaning to do for a really long time, so I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, but before we get started, I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself and tell the uh, listeners a little bit about what it is that you do. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm uh, honored to be on your podcast. I, I've listened to a lot of different episodes and yeah, the last episode I just listened to was uh, talking about men's groups and stuff. So I'm like, well, I need to get myself on some of those. So I'm already taking a lot from your episode. So I really appreciate you having me on here. Uh, so yeah, so my name is Darren Smith. Um, I am a police officer here in the city of Calgary. Uh, I've been a police officer for a very long time, um, almost 19 years uh, with Calgary. Uh, before that, I did student RCMP and stuff like that. So uh, my background is in criminology, sociology, psychology, and I'm going to, right now I'm in my master's degree for public safety. So really everything to do with the safety of Canadians is kind of what my educational background is. Uh, Brief overview of where I've been and where I worked. 
Uh, I joined Calgary in 2004, came out onto the streets in 2005. I was hired at 21, uh, started classes at 22. So I still had a little bit of acne on me when I joined. Um, <laughs> went out there and I started in the height of the gain war here in Calgary. So that was fun. Um, that was an interesting yeah. time. Uh, worked there for several years, went on to a drug team, uh, did that for a couple of years or for a little bit. Um, and that's when I really got my love for investigation. So uh, I'm a, I was a detective by trade. Um, so I went from the streets. I went on to work in our all stuff teams. So I did surveillance for quite a few years. Um, I was had the opportunity to go to the Olympics, had the opportunity to go over to Toronto for the G20, uh, went back to patrol, and then finally I got promoted to detective. So as a detective, I mostly worked larger files, um, some bigger ones that are in the news uh, that you've seen pretty much over the last decade. I worked in general investigations. Um, I worked in domestic conflict unit. That's one of my passions is uh, responding to and preventing domestic violence here in the city. Uh, so I developed a, a strong love for that and stopping family violence. From there, I went on and became a homicide detective, went then offender management. So I dealt with some of the most prolific and higher risk offenders in the city, uh, making sure that really trying to keep them from committing crime uh, on the one side, whether it's incarceration or on the other side, whether that's helping them and getting them off a life of crime. So back and forth with that uh, before I was promoted again. And then I went into our operations center and then before coming back to major crimes where I work in the child abuse unit now. So currently I'm a staff sergeant in the Calgary police service, but uh, generally most of my career, I've been either a detective or some type of an investigator with the police service. So that's pretty much my career in a nutshell. Um, really passionate now about training and teaching and leading and making sure that my officers have a great career and making sure that they serve the citizens well. So. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that, and and it's it's quite the uh, the career over the last nineteen years. It's quite a bit of uh, things you've been involved in and probably seen, which we will get to later as well. But um, I guess the first question that comes to mind naturally is why the police force? What made you want to join at a you know a young age, you know, being twenty twenty one? Well, when I was a uh... I had a lot of positive interactions with the police when I was younger. I do remember that. Like I had a lot of GI Joes and I had enough police officers, little figurines, arm of small police service, but really obviously not a career. But I remember certain things. I remember being put on a call in a, or on a motorcycle. They let me hit the siren. I think I was hooked there at a very young age. I remember working with my school resource officer when I was in elementary school. And I still remember saying someday I'd become a cop. Never really thought about it. Uh, in my junior high and high school years, thought I was going to be a professional basketball player. Uh, decided apparently that didn't work out. But I had a really strong connection also with my school resource officer in high school. Um, lovely woman, happy that I got to call her a colleague uh, later in life when I actually became a police officer. But when I joined, mm -hmm. uh, when I went to university, I was actually going to be a doctor. I was in sciences, I was in pre-med, that was my goal, whether it's dentistry or whether it's going to be a medicine. And the idea of watching fruit flies grow and genetics was kind of like watching paint dry to me. So I knew I wanted to help someone, but I was actually kind of lost at the time. 
Mm -hmm. So I was lucky, fortunate enough to actually be working for the Boys and Girls Club at the time, doing youth programs and working with high-risk teenagers. Um, and some police officers actually came up and they said, well, have you ever thought about this as a career? And I'm like, well, no, when I was a little kid, I did. And they said, you know what, you should. Like, we think you might be good and maybe take a look actually into it. So that, and then my dad actually, so I'm a first generation police officer. I've learned later in life that I actually had cousins over the New York uh, that became police officers as well. But here in Canada, I'm the first one. But my dad, I remember when I was in university, trying to decide what on earth I was going to study. He said, you know what, don't worry about that. Just think, what are you passionate about? Learn about what you are passionate about and the job will come later because that's what he did. And he's a physicist. Um, so I did, and I had some sociology classes, some criminology ones, some sociology, some psychology, um, dealing with criminology and how someone becomes a criminal and like root cause of criminality and like psychology and all that kind of stuff really fascinated me. So really those two things, I decided, oh, maybe I would come a cop. And from the day I said that, um, my whole life, basically the trajectory was set. I joined very young i uh, joined i said the student rcmp while i was still in university had some amazing mentors that taught me what it's like to actually be a police officer and what police officers should be like um so yeah that's pretty much how i got into it uh, just a few little things that uh, the universe kind of made me go in this direction and my sociology right. professor once said she's like she's met two people that were destined to become cops uh me and her ex-husband so I think she meant that as a compliment. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll take it yeah. as a compliment. But yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. And and you and I have chatted obviously offline a little bit here and there, and and we both are passionate about mental health, which is why I do this podcast, and you know you, you do a lot of the stuff you're doing right now. Why is mental health so important for you, and why are you so passionate about it? <clears throat> Well, for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of it's dealing with people with mental health crisis on a regular basis. Um, like a lot of a lot of crime is fueled by either addiction or mental health, and sometimes it's addiction to drugs which are used for mental health, like um, as a mask. So it's that, and it's also really to do with my colleagues. Um, it's no, uh, it's very well known that police officers die mostly from car accidents. And if we don't die from car accidents, we die from suicide. So mm. PTSD is a real thing uh, for not just police officers, but for firefighters and for nurses and for paramedics and for doctors and people that see this kind of things that no one should ever see. Like people ask me sometimes, mm -hmm. like, what's the worst thing you, you've ever seen? And I'll never actually answer that question because people don't want to know the worst thing I've ever seen. I'll usually just tell them some funny story or some it's something I saw, but I'll never actually tell someone what I truly saw because why on earth, I, I do this and no one else has to, why would I vicariously traumatize somebody else? So, mm -hmm. um, but really to do that, we have to take care of ourselves. And a lot of times first responders, and we're, we're a lot better now, we're even better now than when I started. It was kind of that we would be that tough person and get through it. And we're very lucky here in Calgary and we're very lucky in a lot of different places now where we're kind of getting rid of that stigma um, so that we can start taking care of each other. So like I said, I'm, I'm very passionate about also the people that I work with um, and I have the opportunity to lead. 
So my goal is to make sure that they go home and have great lives with their families and great lives with their kids. And, and when they're done this career and they're, when they're, when they're done this service to their community, that they still can live full lives and that this hasn't completely traumatized them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, one of the questions I was going to ask is what's the worst thing you've seen, but I won't <laughs> now. Uh, but it, it's it pretty not, obvious. It would not that, be good you know, for this podcast. Uh, you can listen to it on a, probably a true crime podcast. That's probably a, there's, I'm on a couple of those. So, Okay. Well, yeah, if the listeners want to check that out for sure. But I mean, without even getting into those details, like I'm sure most people can appreciate the severity of the things that you're responding to. Right. And, and this is something else you and I chatted about last time was a lot of, even the, you know, from a domestic abuse perspective, what, what somewhat fascinates me is a lot of the times, and I've, I've spoken to other people in the police as well, but you're having to respond to these situations. And sometimes you don't have, you're not given those tools to be able to respond appropriately. Right. So what are some things that come up, you know, if you're going to a, a scene and having to respond to, to a situation, especially like a domestic abuse type of situation, what are the things that are coming to your mind and, and how are you trying to respond in the best way given the circumstances? And really, it depends on your role in, in that response. So as a, as a patrol officer, I was always very much concerned with the safety of everyone involved. Um, so obviously mm-hmm. for us, it's the safety of the victim and the public oversees us and then our safety and then the safety of the offender. So really our safety is number one. A lot of times police officers are injured at domestic relation or domestic incidents because at any point we don't know who could turn on us. Um, mm-hmm. um, the cycle of violence is very clear and it's, I've seen that invest, we call it the investigative window um, where a victim of domestic violence is actually willing to get out. And that's when usually they call for help. And I've seen that window opened for months and years, and then it collapses and they go back. And then I've seen it closed within a 911 call. So we never really know what we're walking ourselves into, but really it's safety of everyone involved. And then trying to figure out that investigative piece, what actually happened? Um, how can we keep everybody safe? Who is the dominant aggressor? And when I talk about dominant aggressor, a lot of times, what we'll find for say domestic victims is a time someone has gone through the cycle so much, they will actually lash out first because just to get that assault over with, to get back to the honeymoon phase. So who is the actual true dominant aggressor? Was it the person that was defending themselves? Was it the person that attacked first, but really there's an overpowering relationship because domestic violence is all about power and control over another human being, whether it's emotional, mm-hmm. sexual, physical or financial that's what it's all about so trying to determine that and then when you get to the next level which when i was in the domestic conflict unit it's really about officer or the safety of our victim the management of our offender working with our partner agencies such as child services to keep kids um, from seeing that Uh, the number of times i've heard oh the kids don't see us fight or the kids don't see all that kind of they see it um and we need to make sure we can intervene in that so that they understand what a healthy relationship is. So really it's, that's the kind of things that we're thinking about. And then how also can we keep them safe? Because when a police, when police get involved in domestic violence, 
often because we take that control away from the offender, that is sometimes the most dangerous time for the victim. And usually within the next 12, 24 hours or whatever it is. So how can we keep them safe during that time? So these are the kind of things that we're constantly thinking about in our mind, doing risk assessments, doing safety assessments. How bad is this? Um, how concerned do we have to be? Is there going to be stalking? Was there weapons involved? Like there's a gamut of different things that we're trying to basically put together because usually by the time right. the police get involved, things have deteriorated to a horrible level. We usually don't get called mm-hmm. on the first one. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and oftentimes there's, you know, as you alluded to earlier, there's, there's a lot of mental health situations that you're potentially responding to. Do you feel that people working in the, the police service, especially in Calgary, are given the tools and are, are they equipped to be able to deal with all these mental health related situations? And, and if, that, if not, what, what are some things that can happen uh, in those scenarios? What can, you know, for, for the most part, I've seen, at least on the streets, whenever there's police responding, they're able to keep their composure and deal with it appropriately. But is that being, is that asking too much from the individuals? Well, I don't think it's asking too much for the individuals because that's what we're there for. Like, have I, have I been upset when I get to a scene and when I've seen something? Absolutely. But it's not my job to, to cry, whether I want to, it's not my job to cry alongside the victim. My job is to be the calm presence and the rock to get that, to restore basically what has occurred. Um, so I don't think it's too much ask, unfortunately. And it is, well, I shouldn't say it's too much ask. It's what we are asking and it's what needs to occur. But as for right. it's the after effects and it's seeing things repeatedly over and over and over again. And like PTSD can be, and I don't claim to be an expert in PTSD by any means, but PTSD could be an initial incident where I see something, I see something horrific and that causes me some PTSD. But a lot of it is that cumulative or uh, that ongoing thing where we see things over and over and over and over and over again. That's where we kind of get to um, some of that other different PTSDs. As for do we have the tools, we are a lot better. And I will say it was really destigmatized for me very young in my career. Uh, I was involved in it. I was involved in a shooting, actually. And we had to go to a peer, the peer support house. I remember being with mm-hmm. our psychological services. And I remember our chief walking in and our chief walked in in this like 1960s track suit and sat there and chatted with us. And as a young officer, I'm like, wow, like talk about destigmatizing going to psych services and mental health support when the chief of police walks in and sits down with you guys in his like Saturday jogging wear and talks about us and how we're doing and things like that. So, and encourages us to get support. And because of that, we have an incredibly robust psychological services section. We have counseling services. We have mental health services. We really have everything we can if we ask for it. And they can mm. they try and offer it. And so that's one of the biggest things that I see now, at least myself, as I'm a little bit more senior and a leader in the organization, is I openly talk about the fact that I still go for counseling. Mm-hmm. Like the things, my normal is not normal. I'm well aware my normal is not normal. And if I want to be completely right. functioning after a lifetime of policing, I need to make sure I talk to someone about that. 
So I'm open about having to go for counseling. I encourage, uh, I can't order, but I encourage anyone underneath uh, me uh, to continuously go for counseling. I encourage couples, police officers to go for counseling, deal with their marital issues before. I openly talk about where you are in the mental health spectrum. And I think that's where our leaders are, especially our first respond or our supervisors and first responders, that's where they can really help and they do. Um, so we are lucky here in Calgary. Other departments I know are not as lucky as us, but they are moving in that direction. So. Hmm. And and do you feel like a lot of people use those services or, or they're still, you know, as you mentioned in your case, the chief came in and that kind of helped you see that, okay, it's, it's being role modeled, but do you feel like others feel the same way as you do and they're, they're seeking the services that are available? I think it really go- depends on... For me, the first few years of your policing career are incredibly important. It's really who your first mm-hmm. boss was. I look back on my mentors and like I still remember the quote that one of my mentors put in a book when I first joined the police service on. Um, he said, you've been, what do you say? He said, you've joined the largest family in the world. Um, you've been given a lot of power, yield it with compassion and treat others the way you would want your family treated. Like he was very... Those first few officers and your first partners and your first supervisor are crucial to how you become as a police officer. And I think if those officers, and I think and a lot of them are, if they are open to talking about incidents, debriefing incidents, talking about how are you doing, doing those check-ins, um, seeing how people are feeling. I once dragged my team, entire team to do a mindfulness meditation training for a day. Did they all want to go? Absolutely not. They did not want to go, but <laughs> yeah, it helped them. And I know a couple of them have come came to me later and it said, actually, it did help them. Some of the ones that really didn't want to go, it's helped. So I think it's really up to us as leaders to encourage our officers and encourage, and I say officers, but really it's everyone. This, this isn't just for policing. This can be for fire and EMS and Suncor. You could be anywhere um taking care of your people and checking in on their mental health because we're really good at physical health if somebody's sick and coughing we'll say hey go but if someone's down and looking a little bit depressed or going through something well we're not Mm -hmm. as quick to say hey have you gone to a doctor have you gone and talked to someone about that and i think we're getting Mm -hmm. better at this but we're not i think there's always room for improvement right right yeah yeah and and one of the things you and I also talked about is feeling safe, right? And, and we touched on like, you know, I can speak for myself, traveling around the world. There's not a a lot of cities I feel comfortable being out alone at night. Whereas in Calgary, that's seldom the case. I feel pretty safe. Um, I don't think there's ever been a case where, you know, for the most part, being in many parts of Calgary where I have, uh, where I haven't felt safe. So, um, that that obviously speaks to to the services here, but what are your thoughts on that in terms of the work you guys do behind the scenes? Well, that's, and I'm glad you say. I'm glad whenever I hear that because truthfully, the job of any police service and any police officer is safety. Um, we want to make sure everyone is safe. Like that's that's our entire role. Like if you look back to some of the principles of actual policing, like the history of policing itself for Canada, like it's back from Sir Robert Peel uh, in the UK. That's actually why they're called Bobby, by the way. Um, 
They mm-hmm. said the absence of crime is the true test of a police department, not the visible response of police officers going to it. So it's not mm-hmm. us racing lights and sirens down the street to get to an incident that would determine whether someone feels safe in our city. It's the lack of crime, which you just talked about. Like, I feel safe going walking around. That's the true test of a police department. Um, so, uh, and I do think Calgary is a safe city. Like, obviously we have our issues and a lot of people don't know what's going on. Uh, the news only reports mm-hmm. on a very small percentage. Uh, we take thousands of calls a day and you maybe see one if that in the news. So the vast majority of the public don't actually know what's going on and that's fine. Uh, but yeah, I generally think Calgary is a safe city and I think we are continuing, like a lot of Canada is continuing down that road of trying to make it even more safe. Like we're, we're obviously, um, and I won't speak to the higher ups because of course, um, what the executive and all of them are talking about, they're the ones that are truly making the decisions and on where we're actually going to go as a city and how we're going to make it more safe. But even for example, a team like domestic conflict unit where I I used to work or now with child abuse, we're actively responding to and doing what we can with our community partners to prevent these types of crimes from occurring. So that's the kind of things that you see behind the scenes that I think the general public uh, doesn't see. I, most of the general public see police officers as we, we go around, we, we pull somebody over, we'll respond to something, we'll write the odd ticket. I don't even know how to write a ticket anymore. Like I, I haven't written a ticket in 11 years. Like if you gave me something, I'm sure I could figure it out, but it would be entirely yeah. wrong. Like someone would love to get a ticket for me because it would not get past report. So yeah, yeah I would love that yeah, too, right? but, but uh... I don't know how to do it. So <laughs> Yeah, no, that's uh, I've been on a, a good streak here. So, um, <laughs> but uh, um, speaking about that, like also, you know, one of the things I'm interested in, in, and I know we touched on this too previously, but what goes into planning for for future years, like in terms of crime rates, like, and, and one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, with with the cost of living going up and, and inflation on the horizon here, and we're seeing all of that happening with interest rates going up, like, do you guys take that into consideration and what are some of the things you do to prepare knowing that there could be potential in, in, in the increase of crime in the city? And really, and it'd be, I can only speak to so much of that because obviously that is our, our chief and our deputy chief that look at the planning of a police department and how we're going to address that in the future. But just even looking at this most recent budget increase where like we're a thriving city and we needed more individuals on the street and more police officers and more civilians that were responding to it. But as for say, looking at like you're talking about inflation and all that kind of stuff, really it's the root cause of criminality. Like I can talk a little bit about the root cause. Um, like if you look at socioeconomic yeah. and like poverty and things like that, absolutely. Um, we actually see, we've seen graphs before where uh, if, unemployment rate goes up. The more people aren't employed, uh, there will be about a six to 10 month lag, for example, and then domestic violence will go up. And Mm -hmm. do we think that just because somebody loses their job, they're going to go and engage in domestic violence? No, absolutely. It's not a, it's not a trigger. It's not a causal factor, but it definitely is maybe that trigger for someone who is already predispositioned for that type of violence that added stress might take them on. So 
just because someone's in poverty or like loses their job, are they going to now become addicted to methamphetamines or things like that? May, probably not, unless they're predispositioned for that and that's kind of where they're going. But that's, so that's right. definitely um, something that has to be kept on the radar. Uh, but it's like anything, if you look at root causes of criminality or really drug use, mental health, things like that, but how do we solve them? Well, we don't solve them just by police. Um, we always, I tell people even in, uh, when I work with community partners, we can't arrest our way out of a situation. Like we are just one, right. one tool that addresses safety in this city. We do have to look at housing, which is the base of Maslow's hierarchy. We do have to look at all those different things um, to address the root cause of criminality. We need to look at uh, addiction issues. We need to look at mental health. We need to try, even we were talking today about um, child abuse and things like that, where us dealing with it now and helping that child, it's a horrific thing that occurred to this child, um, will hopefully help them later on become more resilient mm -hmm. and not go down that path of criminality and addiction and things like that. Really, it is a fork in the road. So that's right. And that's a lot to put on a police department. And that's why that's, that's why we really have to rely on our community partners and all the other agencies that deal with that kind of stuff, because no one wants me to come to their house and talk about housing. Right? Like, that's not my job. Right. My job is come to their house when I'm uh, when they're in trouble. So how right. do we kind of work with our partners for that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that makes sense. And and speaking of that, like, you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of nice things to say about police officers. Right. Um, especially when you get pulled over. <laughs> so. How does that make you feel when you hear that? And I'm sure you've probably heard some versions of it or, or, you know, I'm sure you've had people be upset with you in the past. Like, how does that make you feel? And what would you like to say to people when, when that does happen? Well, so I, I uh, tell a story. I, a friend of mine's uh, now wife, amazing woman. When we first met, she's like, she found out what I did. She said to me, she's like, I don't really like police officers. I'm like, oh, okay. Mm. And we sat there and we talked actually for about 45 minutes, I think, maybe an hour, maybe a couple hours. And now she's one of my favorite humans and she loves me as well. <laughs> and she even said later, she's like, yeah, you convinced me that day. And I think it's really just looking at us as we're, we're people. We're people that are there to help you. And are there bad apples? Absolutely, there's going to be bad apples. There's horrible accountants. There is horrible... Yeah. <laughs> Again, trying, there's horrible in every single career. The only difference is right. the power that is imbalance that's kind of given to us versus where, while you're accounting, you're just going to fire. Well, you're not, you can't fire right. the police officer who is dealing with your incident. So I, don't, I think it's really just looking at that and remembering that we're human. And a lot of people talk, sit with me after, and I've had that. It doesn't really bother me. Um, I would... I'd be naive to say that it is not a contributing factor to our morale right now when we have issues going around the world with defund the police and things like that. And, mm -hmm. and coming from really just a, I'm not going to say an, an opinion that it's not really based entirely on like understanding the entire realm of what's going on. So a lot of people think they know right. what police officers do because they watch TV. I wish I had some of the stuff that they have on TV. Like I can't, unfortunately I can't solve a crime in 45 minutes with a commercial break, but so it's really just 
that kind of understanding and generally speaking we're very lucky here in calgary like overall we have a 90 percent approval rating and we have almost every year of my career other than i think this year so i think we are very lucky here but see a tv sh or a crime and uh 45 minutes with a commercial break but it's not that one unfortunately is not realistic but it's really just an understanding of like it, it is difficult um and it's we want to there has been times when i've i've not liked people um when some because of something i've seen or something that's occurred and i have to make a i make a conscious effort to go and do something that reminds myself that I deal with a small percentage of the population. So, but overall, we are very yeah. lucky here in Calgary and we have support of the citizens and we've seen that before with the death of our officers. And uh, so we do have the support here, but it does get challenging. And one of the things I try to focus on myself is, you know, you guys are going out there putting yourself uh, in the line of fire and not a lot of people would be willing to do that. Right. So so that's something to, to consider as well. Um, so to your point, it's easy to pick on all the, the, the bad apples and, and generalizing, but it's not an easy task. Right. And, and it takes a lot. And, you know, I mean, one of the other things I, I've seen is you guys work a lot of shift work, which is not easy either, like going back and forth between day shift and night shift. Well, and, and shift work, and people have to understand, it's funny, it would be a horrible recruiting drive. And I'm sure if a recruiting unit hears this, they're going to get mad at me for saying it. But <laughs> essentially, like, if, if you join the police service, you almost automatically are taking years off your life. Like, it's statistically proven that right. you will at the end of your life because of shift work and everything that you have to deal with and, and call out and all that kind of stuff. And would I change it for the world? No. But to your point of shift work and doing all that kind of stuff, and to go back to the mental health piece, well, that's something that hugely impactful for us like we one thing we and we learn this very young and whether we remember it is a different uh, different thing and this is something that i preach to people is police ems fire nurses people that kind of live in that hyper vigilant state hmm. if you've ever dealt with something crazy throughout your day or something that caused panic and you kind of elevate it to the hypervigilant state, often like that night, you're going to be a little bit tired. Right. You might not, you know, it could kind of crash. Yeah. Well, we live at that state. Like we live at that high level, hypervigilant at any time we have to kind of be able to react to society and what's going on and what call we're going to. So we live at that state. And then when we go home, we crash. Mm -hmm. So if you ask me this during my 12 hour shift, I can make life and death decisions and it's fine. Like it doesn't bother me at all. And then when I get home, if you ask me what's for dinner, I don't have the cognitive power to actually be able to answer your question. Right. Because I'm just too spent. So while the nor average person just is even at their kind of equilibrium, we'll say with odd spikes up and down, first responders and people that deal with this on a regular basis live in either the high or the low. So unfortunately, what sometimes happens is your work life gets your best of you and your home life gets the worst of you, hmm. unless we actually can address it. And fortunately, is never put that on a dating profile or anything like that, but you really can get back up if with like 20 minutes of exercise or time. 
So it's really, there are ways to get yourself back to that equilibrium and deal with it uh, and be completely healthy, but that's something that we have to be aware of. And another that part of that mental health piece where we have to watch out for our first responders and our doctors and our nurses and all that kind of stuff, because that's what they're dealing with on a daily basis. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I mean, for anyone who understands that, like from a physiological sense, like your, your body's just pumping cortisol. Right. And do you find like, and I don't know if you can answer this, but cause most of the time people get addicted to that cycle. Right. Is that something you experience as well, like on a subconscious level where that hypervigilance is kind of where you want to be operating at because of that, I guess, the pumping of the cortisol going on in your body? I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a, a, an addicting thing, but I guess it could be. Like if, it, if you were constantly put into that event, yeah, because obviously you're at that high state and then you have those crashes, but. It's less the addict. I'm not sure. Subconsciously, you might, you know, that's an interesting question. Subconsciously, maybe, because mm. that might be part of the reason why, again, work might get your best life and home might get your work, worst life unless right. you address it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, it's just, yeah, again, it's that, yeah, you're right. It's that physiological. So I, to give you a, as for cortisol and the stress hormone and all that kind of stuff, yeah, we're absolutely, we have higher. I got tested once and uh, at, at rest, I was over where you should ever be. Right. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's something that we can definitely, we definitely look at. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how has therapy, cause you mentioned that's something you definitely prioritize. How has that helped you navigate through your career versus some of your peers? If, if you were able to like compare um, and, or, or even just specifically to you, how has therapy been beneficial from that standpoint? Well, it's interesting. Um, Generally, I don't have to go to therapy much about what I see at work, which is most people would say is ridiculous. Like I was in homicide and I did domestics and I'm in childhood. Like I don't go to nice places. Yeah. But we're not that much different than someone that's going to work in for that kind of stuff or stress. Someone that works in an office or someone works for human resources or someone that works for an oil company downtown. Like what do we usually get stressed about? We get stressed about the organization, about about policies, about things that are affecting us or our home life. Like a lot of, for me, um, like there's been certain things that have occurred in my life, uh, which have really kind of triggered mental health, just making sure I was okay. Uh, death of an officer, death of my partner, mm-hmm. um, in placing, uh, divorce, things like that is when the kind of, I utilize counseling the much most, um, but I'm religious about making sure I'm self-reflective and taking care of myself. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I'm very resilient and I should have PTSD, but I don't maybe Mm. Um, because I am self-reflective and I talk about things and I have healthy coping mechanisms. That's one of the things I think a lot of men, whether it's a lot of people just need to have healthy coping mechanisms. Like that's how can, when I'm upset, I don't grab, I don't drink alcohol. Mm. I'll go to the gym. Right. Um, I have that morning routine that like gets my day started. I'll openly talk about things to either friends, trusted friends or a counselor. Um, so really it's like taking care exercise has really kind of saved me. Um, that's really my go-to for mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, that, but that counseling, obviously it's great. I don't 
especially having a good counselor. Like for me, when I, after uh, my divorce, I had to go to a couple counselors until I found the right one. Yeah. And when I found that right counselor, she called me on my bullshit. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's what you need. You need someone that isn't going to sugarcoat things all the time and is going to say stuff and like whether you like to hear it or whether you don't like to hear it. And so I would tell people, anyone listening as far as whether you say, oh, counseling is, is dumb. Well, I agree. Like if you find the wrong, wrong person, like you need to find the person that matches you. Otherwise it's just not going to work. And right. I was lucky enough to finally found that, find that. So. Yeah, no, I agree. And I've, I've stated that in my own personal journey with therapy. And I've also mentioned it here on this podcast that, you know, quite often when people don't find the therapist that they are able to jive with, they completely give up on therapy and, and they mm -hmm. just feel discouraged. But to your point, it, sometimes it takes time and to find a therapist that you're able to work with and who's able to adjust their style to what you need. Um, I've also changed therapists for different seasons of my life. And that's what I needed at the time was someone specifically early on just to listen to me rat. And then later on, I just needed someone, as you said, to call me out. So our needs change as well as time progresses. And, and, you know, especially in your career, like if you see certain things, you probably need a different type of therapist as well. Yeah. And someone that kind of understands us and, and it's, yeah, it's that understanding of, you're right, it's what you need at that time. Are you needing, is this big stressor in your life, your relationship and not your work? Is big stress something you occurred? Is it just an ongoing mental health check-in? And like I, for most part, I just go mostly for annual check-ins. And that's why one thing I encourage with anyone that I, that works for me is we do an annual physical checkup. Why do we not do an annual mm. mental health checkup? Mm -hmm. And most often too, people wait too long until they're in crisis mode or they have to address things or they're trying to fix something before they actually go and seek out that kind of help versus if you do it when you're on an ongoing basis, well, I'm just here for my checkup. Oh, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Well, you know what, actually this being going on, this is being going on. And just maybe gives you a little bit of tools to try and address that over the next year or six months or whatever you need or or maybe you need to do a follow-up appointment. Like it's very, very similar to checking on your men, your physical health. Mm -hmm. And the two, as you know, are so intricate, intricately tied. That, right. Yeah. Why not do both? Yeah. No, I agree absolutely. So, so what are your plans now? Like you said, you, you've got a master's on the go. What's next for for Darren here? As you know, cause currently you're kind of working in the child abuse section, but like, what's next? <laughs> Oh, I'm always up to something. Um, I'm fully aware at this point that I'm in the tail end of my career. And it's funny to say that because I still feel like I joined just yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still learning every single day. I still love my job, um, which is, again, a funny thing to say considering where I work. Yeah. But I, I love my job. But I'm really now more in the, the teaching and mentoring and bringing up new leaders in the organization and finding new detectives so that when I'm gone and something happens to me or something happens to my family, that we, again, that legacy building, that kind of, there's enough people there that are going to still be able to take care of me, take care of the city, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. like, and that's kind of where I'm at the tail end of my career for that. What 
what occurs next, I'm not sure. Um, I, I could do something after policing. Um, I've told you this before, but I went into real estate, um, yeah. which is completely different <laughs> than my current. But you know what? It's, it's, it is and it isn't. It, it, it's good in the fact that uh, I still get to help people. Right. But for example, my last homicide that I investigated, I would have tea with the victim's parents. And I'd have tea with them every couple of months and I'd go to their house and we'd sit there and have a tea and they were elderly couple and we would just chat and we'd chat about what's going on. And, and eventually everything was done in court. And I sat, sat there with them. Like, I'm not going to, I don't think I should come for tea anymore because I was a negative memory for them. Like I was a trigger to the worst time of their lives. Like mm -hmm. I was there when their loved ones were told that they died. Mm -hmm. So this is not a, a good relationship. And I told them that I'd still be there for every, any time they call me, they need help. I would be there, but I was a bad memory versus I think why I went into a different career is that well, now I can be a good memory. Now I can actually, there, I can send an anniversary card when they like moved into a home and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's really, for me, I'm just trying to still help people, but help people in a way that, in a happy way. No one calls the police when they're having a good day. No one says, hey, I'm fine. I just want to let you guys know that I'm okay. Right, right. Yeah. And and I yeah. guess as we come to an end, why was it so important for you to be there for that family? Uh, I mean, that's obviously not in your job description to go, uh, you know, spend time with them and have tea. But why was it so important for you? And I think that's where the public forgets sometimes of why most of us do this. And we, we see it out every so often on a meme. I think there is one a few months ago with an officer that was sitting cross-legged with a, with a homeless person downtown. And, but really like we do, we're not, we're a service to the community. Like that's what we do. And it's when you see people, especially that, those kind of circumstances, like where you, basically take someone like we destroyed their lives essentially like we didn't the person that caused this did but it's i don't know it's we don't have to do that you're right but i've gone to people's funerals because i was invited to them mm. it was homicide and i supported them through that and i've grabbed things out of someone's house so that they could go on a trip um even though it was a crime scene like we've we try and do those little things and a lot of people don't know this but we'll uh, one of my, uh, one of the main duty inspectors here in the service always has gift cards and he like buys uh, homeless people coffees all the time when they're in the McDonald's line. So like we don't, that's the kind of stuff that people don't see right. uh, because that's not flashy news. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll end up on a meme every so often, but when you join an industry that to save people and to help people and to protect people, well, you want to do that. And that's what you want to do. So you're just going to do those kind of things. You're going to have tea and you're going to push somebody's car out and you're going to have that little chat with the kid and go and do the crime not to read program. And you're doing to do those things because that's just why you joined the job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. And <clears throat> Darren, thank you. Thank you for coming on here, sharing your story and thank you for the work you and your colleagues do. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we bring it to an end? 
No, I just really appreciate that you invited me on this podcast. Like I, I looked at some of the other guests and I'm like, wow, I, I hope somebody got something from it. But really, if, if I could say anything, it's just, again, take care of that, your mental health, um, whether you're a first responder or not a first responder, don't be afraid to ask for help. Look, um, find your healthy coping mechanisms and make sure that you're okay because life is great. Um, life's mm-hmm. a journey. Uh, and you want to be here for it. You want to be here for your kids. You want to be here for your spouse and your partners and your family and friends. So take care of your mental health as much as you take care of your physical health. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's well said. And, and normally I give uh, the guests an opportunity to share how listeners or the audience can get a hold of them. I know your situation's a bit unique. So <laughs> Mine's I'll, a little bit unique. Yeah. So. yeah. I'll put it out there, but. I completely understand if that's a no. <laughs> well, you know what? When it, for the policing kind of stuff, really, like there's so many resources available and there's so many people that are going to be able to get you help and feel free to contact the carry or the police service for anything you're kind of needing. Um, ask for help, call 211 for other services. Um, there's so many things out there and I know it can get overwhelming at times to really who's going to actually help me. And at times, like I've even felt it, like my mental health has crashed at times where Mm -hmm. I was in a very dark place. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I felt like I was completely alone. I was the only one that was going to go through it and nobody could help me. And this from someone whose entire sole purpose in life has been to help people and deal with these issues for a very long time. So really it's, so yeah, as far as contacting me specifically, maybe not as easy, (laughs) uh, but really go and get those resources, get those resources and, uh, know that there are other people that are going through exactly what you're going through, even if you don't feel like they are. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Darren. I, I really appreciate this and um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too. Thank you so much for having me, my friend. Thank you for checking out this week's episode with Darren. Please subscribe to the podcast so you can get access to all the episodes and please leave a five-star review. That's the best way to support this podcast. And check out next week's episode. Until then.